At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If the world that we are forced to accept is false and nothing is true, then everything is possible. On the way to discovering what we love, we will find everything we hate, everything that blocks our path to what we desire. Comfort will never be comfortable for those who seek what is not on the market. A systematic questioning of the idea of happiness. We'll cut the vocal cords of every empowered speaker. We'll yank the social symbols through the looking glass. We'll devalue society's currency. To confront the familiar, society is a fraud so complete and venal that it demands to be destroyed beyond the power of memory to recall its existence. Where there is fire, we will carry gasoline. To interrupt the continuum of everyday experience and all the normal expectations that go with it. To live as if something actually depended on one's actions. To rupture the spell of the ideology of a commodified consumer society so that our repressed desires of a more authentic nature can come forward. To demonstrate the contrast between what life presently is and what it could be. To immerse ourselves in the oblivion of action, to know we're making it happen. It will be an intensity never before known in everyday life to exchange love and hate, life and death, terror and redemption, repulsions and attractions. An affirmation of freedom so reckless and unqualified that it amounts to a total denial of every kind of restraint and limitation. A scene from Richard Linklater's Waking Life. In these batshit crazy and bat meat disease times, I would leverage each one of those lines as a daily mantra. A supplication to the aeons. Because the Pandora, Egregore, and Archon invasion is only going to get much, much worse in 2020. Damn you! God damn you all to hell! Here we are at the end of the world. As Melisandre tells Arius Stark in The Long Night. There's only one hell, princess. The one we live in now. Here we are at the end of the world. As always, with the god in the gutter of Philip K. Dick and that despised philosopher's stone buried in the mud. But as Oscar Wilde said, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at stars. Luminous beings don't eat. With those mantras, we'll pierce the Orwellian veils and find ways to recover those intrinsic rights that were suspended just like that. Expose a majority of humanity that became nothing more than a cipher of the Matrix slash Karen slash Freelancer Daleks. I'm amazed how easily the world sold out and sold their freedoms for a little safety and certainty. And I'm sure all these asshats believe the propaganda that Greedo shot first. You'll rot in some complacency hell soon, in your pod and eating bugs. But we, the veterans of a thousand psychic wars, will rise from the gutter with the 
power of the stars, the philosopher's stone, and the contraband wisdom of the Gnostics. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Is the virus real? Of course it's real. The question is, how real is it? What is undeniably real is that there is no reason to trust the government, the media, our religious and civic leaders, useless celebrities. For they have been lying to us for the last 10,000 years. That's what the butt slaves of the Demiurge do. It's their nature. And they weaponize all that is good and even all that is perilous to keep us trapped and even licking the bars of the Black Iron Prison. As William Blake said, A truth with bad intent is worse than all the lies you can invent. So what is ubiquitous assimilation? Always absorbing everything everywhere all the time. How are you to imagine anything if the images are always provided for you? Who here read 1984 last year? Having two opposing beliefs at once. To deliberately believe in lies while knowing they're false. This is a marketing holocaust. 24 hours a day for the rest of our lives. The powers that be are hard at work dumbing us to death. I don't even trust my own senses because of years of programming. But I know that a higher part of me, the news, can alchemically pierce those Orwellian veils. And like you, I also possess an inner Prometheus, an indwelling palace Athena, that steal fire from the gods and ignite a furious ecstasy affecting higher myth, magic, and meaning to my life. By the power of truth, I, while living, have conquered the universe. Here we are, at the end of the world. So it's time to make new worlds of potential and possibility. Embrace those mantras. Except you are higher than the gods, as the Nag Hammadi Library's Apocalypse of Adam states. Keep questioning the narrative of society and your own senses. Never stop fighting for the least of your brothers. Know you are beautiful and amazing, a shining crazy diamond. And together we can overcome any apocalypse. More than ever, tell yourself this quote from the Gospel of Thomas. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And now go and make interesting mistakes, make amazing mistakes, make glorious and fantastic mistakes, break rules. Leave the world more interesting for your being here. Make good art. And yes, this is Aeon Bytenostic Radio. Welcome to the desert of the real. That dream of you and distant ship smoke on the horizon. 
Welcome to the end of the world and the beginning of you finding your authentic self. Even in a predatory universe that provides useless viruses and nipples for men. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? I choose to run toward my problems and not away from them. That's what... Because that's what heroes do. Your host, Miguel Connor, that pompous of gnosis, welcomes you to the virtual Alexandria to midwife that contraband wisdom of the Gnostics. Myth, magic, and meaning. How about we add miracles and madness too? That is the theme of our show. Another important key to liberation is knowing history because what's happening today is not that unprecedented. As Mark Twain said, History doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. The Bible is both the history of consciousness and a manual for mind control. There are wars and pestilence and famines in the New Testament that allowed heroes to rise and villains to increase their grip. What would they do to me? Oh, you'll probably get away with crucifixion. Crucifixion? Yeah. First offense. Magic, miracles, and madness. Nothing has changed that much. For this, we have not one, but three amazing astral guests on a special show. All centered on a new book, The Case Against Miracles. Truly a treatise on using your brain in a time where Yaldi Baldi and his angels are insisting you turn off your reason. I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. This episode is divided into two parts. In our first part, editor and contributor of The Case Against Miracles, as well as a free-thinking exemplar, John Luftus, talks about the failure of Christian apologetics and biblical miracles. In the second part, Robert Price and Robert Connor join us for a group discussion on madness and magic in the New Testament. Was Paul insane or just a mystic or both? And much, much more. The greatest trick God ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. First time ever these two Bobs were on any media together and there was a spirited debate in one section. Woo. But all in all, an excellent and highbrow conversation that I feel will provide insights as a world ended in the first century. Unlike that world, we need to stop the empire today from recoding the hologram. Much easier with the contributions and work of John Luftus, Robert Price, and Robert Connor. Some people lose their faith because heaven shows them too little. But how many people lose their faith because heaven shows them too much? Here we are at the end of the world. And drawing from Anthony Hopkins in the film Instinct, 
you'll realize that your freedom and control were not stolen because you never had them in the first place. What the Archons stole because they overplayed their hands, what they really stole was your illusion of freedom and control. Without egoic illusions, now we can locate our freedoms and know we don't care about being in control. We have our mantras, our imagination, and that Gnostic contraband wisdom. We have our authentic selves and we no longer deny our potential. And we have each other as well as Sophia. Like Nikos Kazantzaki said, If we all desired intensely, if we organize all the visible and invisible powers of earth and fling them upward, if we all battle together like fellow combatants eternally vigilant, then the universe might possibly be saved. Hell, I'm going to grant you the greatest wish. I'm going to show you a world without sin. It's going to be fine. I'm glad you're here with me. I'm glad you are you. I'm glad John, Robert, and Bob are here at the virtual Alexandria with some magic miracles and madness. Write your own gospel and live your own myth. God can help you. So what God does. He helps. Tell me. Why didn't God help my innocent friend who died for no reason? While the guilty roam free? Okay. Fine. Forget the one-offs. How about the countless wars declared in his name? Okay. Fine. Let's skip the random meaningless murder for a second, shall we? How about the racist, sexist, phobia soup we've all been drowning in because of him? And I'm not just talking about Jesus. I'm talking about all organized religion. Exclusive groups created to manage control dealer He's getting people hooked on the drug of hope his followers nothing but addicts who want their hit of bullshit to keep their their dopamine of ignorance addicts afraid to believe the truth that there's no order there's no power that all religions are just metastasizing mind worms meant to divide us so it's easier to rule us by the charlatans that want to run us. All we are to them are our paying fanboys of their poorly written sci-fi franchise. <laughs> if I don't listen to my imaginary friend, why the fuck should I listen to yours? People think their worship some key to happiness. That's just how he owns you. Even I'm not crazy enough to believe that. 
distortion of reality. So fuck God. He's not a good enough scapegoat for me. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by John Luftas to discuss his book, The Case Against Miracles. How are you doing, John, and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good deal. And also with us we've got the moon dog, Vance Sachi. How are you doing, Vance? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, it is a miracle that I got up this early on a Sunday, but other than that, let's hear what the case against the miracles is. <laughs> yes, and it is a good, it is a very good case, and it's a very good book. For the audience, after this interview, we will have our interview with Robert Price and Robert Connor, which we focus more on Paul, magic, and Christianity and some other topics. Again, uh, the book, The Case Against Miracles, is a contribution of many excellent thinkers and writers, introduction by Michael Shermer, and it is edited by our guest, John Luftas. So tell us, John, how did you come about in uh, creating this book? Well, I, um, I guess I'm known for coming up with anthologies. <laughs> I'm always thinking of new ideas. I um, kind of backed into doing them. I just... Um, um, wanted to do something different. A lot of an anthologies were um, uh, essays that had been previously published, and um, you know the editor would grab them, the best of the best, and put them into books. And um, but I wanted to have lot, you know, fresh essays. I wanted to have current essays. I wanted to have people who were in the process or had written. Um, essays that they could summarize, you know, some of their ideas, you know, in a, in a one chapter synopsis and, um, the case against miracles just hadn't been done, you know, in this sufficient length, I thought, and then uh, in conversations with other people, I thought it would be, uh, an, you know, an important topic. There's one, um, a good one edited by Michael Martin and, uh, Keith Augustine, uh, on uh, life after death, it's really, it's really thick, and it's really good. And uh, we needed one on the topic of miracles. I think miracles is the the, the key when you come to um, belief. And um, you know, is there any evidence for miracles? How do we how would we know if a miracle uh, took place? And um, I wanted to hit it from every you know, every angle if I if I could in in a uh, five to six hundred page book, which you know I could have length, lengthened it. <laughs> doubled it probably but it's um i think it's a good book it turned out pretty good i enjoyed the essays that i read and uh, is it a, a miracle that this kind of book comes up or is it pretty easy to be able to herd everybody into delivering their essays on time well that's a good question people don't always ask me that it's it's uh it's difficult um you know i mean initially you know my first anthology the christian delusion i um hadn't yet established myself and it was really hard to get people to, to write for me. I got turned down quite a bit. And, um, then, uh, those who, uh, agreed to write chapters when they, you know, submitted them, I had, I think I rejected, uh, three or four of them and they were quite surprised that I made enemies. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> cause I'm not, uh, cause, yeah, cause I'm just not going to accept anything. I don't care who you are. So, um, 
that's what makes my anthologies good. And as every anthology I've rejected some essays. It's always a struggle, and uh, this one wasn't any, any exception. So um, it's um, a lot of work, and um, you know the, the pay is. I mean, if I if I were to pay myself what I get for these books, it's like you know under a dollar an hour. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hours, a wow. lot of hours, and not that much royalties, you know, out of it. But uh, I do have the labor of love. I think it's um, essential to get these ideas out because I think that. You know, religion harms us, you know, in some way. If, if for no other reason than that it, uh, it allows, it gives permission to people to believe in unevidenced, you know, things. And that's always, and can be always, it can be dangerous and usually is dangerous to thinking adults. Certainly agree with that, and I, and I completely understand. I have uh, written for anthologies, and I know uh, editors have pushed back, but eventually it is a lot of work, but the final product is always better. Even uh, I have books called Voices of Gnosticism, where I just did the transcript from a guest, and that was a lot of work because you're passing it back, you're uh -huh. asking for permission. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's not All as right. easy as just throwing them together on a PDF. <laughs> No, no, it would be it would be if I just um, <clears throat> read through a lot of essays and published in the journals, and chose say fifteen, sixteen, seventeen of them, and I uh, you know, just got permission to use them, and um, you know paid the uh, journals uh, <clears throat> robbery type of fees to use them, and then I'd even make less. <laughs> <They're> not done. <laughs> yeah. an hour, an hour, and. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, there's already the uh, published material. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot more work, but these are fresh essays by uh, key um, philosophers, theologians, or ex-theologians and historians, scientists. So I think that's what makes them so. You know, so I think it's good, really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed them. And uh, why don't we talk about some of your essays? Obviously, for the next interview, Robert Price and Robert Connor will be discussing their essays and their ideas. And uh, for the audience, as I mentioned before, it became almost uh, a bit of a spirited debate. Obviously, not all free thinkers <laughs> think, uh, and you should know this, John, they don't all think the same. There are uh, different points of view, and there are little subgroups and uh in uh, yeah, in the free thought uh, movement, or even in, in in academia itself, but in your chapter, the abject failure of Christian apologetics, you write about evidentialism, and I believe you say that when you were a Christian, that's something you subscribe to. Maybe could you share with the audience what that is and why it fails ultimately? First off, I, I heard uh, uh, via email about the about your interview with uh, Robert. Connor, so I look forward to hearing that. Uh, yeah, we we, uh, we don't always agree, and the um, spirit of debate is is important. Um, I wish I could comment on it because I because I I chose to you know include his essays, and I want to say why, but um, I guess I have to like let him do his own arguing on that one. But um, the the topic um, the abject Christian uh, the abject failure of Christian apologetics is uh, uh, taken from John Ehrman's book, Hume's Abject Failure. And he was uh, an agnostic uh, philosopher of, of science, I believe. 
and he uh, attacked David Hume and uh, you know said David Hume doesn't know what he's talking about. Basically, he, he didn't have any new ideas, and and um, we can uh, do better than Hume. And so, um, I um, I thought I would use that same title for my chapter on uh, on, a, on apologetics. Uh, I think it's chapter six. Uh, so yeah, I forget now. <laughs> but um, um, I said I wanted to use that same title because I like that title. <laughs> Even if I disagree with John Irvin's <laughs> assessment of David Hume, in fact, I, I consider this book on miracles uh, to be uh, a robust defense of David Hume, uh, in spite of his criticisms. And I think that um, most of his criticisms are um, addressed in the book, anyway. So. Um, I wanted to use that title because I thought it was such a good one, and I argue that Christian apologetics is uh, is an abject failure, and that we could know it is an abject failure because Christian apologists themselves disagree on how to defend their faith, and it's more than just disagreement. It's the fact that there's no uh, uh, given their arguments and counter arguments to the very different methods available, uh, which I find, uh, you know, when they when they criticize the other methods, I find them to be quite accurate and on the on the mark when they disagree with each other, um, leaving no, you know, sound method for doing apologetics. The first method is evidentialism, and I call it. Um, uh, sufficient objective evidence, the the criterion of sufficient objective evidence. And uh, I don't find anything wrong with that criterion, of course. It's just that all subsequent Christian apologetics disagrees with it. And it found, I found it interesting that um, of the other methods, I think I deal with the five major methods in that chapter, of the uh, different methods, four of them disagree that uh, sufficient objective evidence is what they should focus on when it comes to Christian apologetics. You know, and I, I was intrigued because I had studied um, you know Christian apologetics under five different leading defenders of five methods, um, and uh, so I, I uh, now that I'm an atheist, now that I think differently. This intrigued me, and I wanted to find out more about this. And uh, I've um, upon uh, studying it out more thoroughly. I've come to some conclusions uh, about things that I hadn't noticed before. And that is, <clears throat> they, uh, there's something wrong with a faith that is defended by people who reject the criteria of sufficient objective evidence. Now, if, if you can't say, now my faith is based on sufficient objective evidence, then there, that's a key indicator all by itself, if you know nothing else, that that faith is wrong. Uh, and what we have, that's right. And what we have are Christian apologetics um, for four different methods who disagree in sufficient objective evidence. And that's um, why I stress this uh, abject failure. Now, the people who claim that uh, Christian apologetics is defended adequately by sufficient objective evidence, like Gary Habermas and John Warwick Montgomery and Josh McDowell, they would say, no, no, these other guys are wrong, uh, and we're right. What they fail to understand, and I point out in my book, is that the criteria of sufficient objective evidence was actually adopted at one time uh, by the deists. And the deists, they said, we're going to look at um, 
what what reason can lead us to believe in what what reason leads us to accept based on the evidence and they were the first evidentialists you see (laughs) (laughs) and and uh, it led them consistently you know to reject the uh the uh, eventually reject um uh, miracles and the afterlife and morals uh, based on in a creator, and then eventually that God did anything in the in the world at all, um, uh, leading furthermore to the adoption of atheism um, by people by deists who became atheists through the same process of re- of uh, looking for sufficient objective evidence. So even that method. Um, leads somewhere different than where Gary Habermas and McDowell and Warwick Montgomery um, claim it does. They just don't get it yet. <laughs> yeah, it's indeed. And, and for you, when you were a Christian, what has that tipped you over? Did you have a road for Damascus? I think for me, when I was Catholic and wanted to move on, it was just, I just couldn't handle the cognitive dissonance. It was just too painful. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of, Christians or uh, Christian apologists, they, they don't understand the um, cognitive biases. I think I think that more and more of them are understanding that. It's a relatively new field, I think, anyway, from uh, Leon uh, Fessinger's uh, study of apocalyptic cults and what they do when their prophecies are, are shown to be a failure. What they do is they reinvent things. They change their minds. They adopt a different position. And so um, that's because they have to reduce this dissonance that is in their minds. Because on the one hand, uh, they had a, you know, a prophecy of, of a returning Messiah or something like that. And uh, when that failed, what they were supposed to do? Should they disband? Should they, you know, undercut everything that they, be- you know, believe in? Or should they reinvent what they believe in and to reduce that uh, dissonance? So, um, that's that's a fair point. That's that's just something they don't understand. And I do hammer on that, but not necessarily that much in this book in the case of against miracles, because uh, it's cognitive biases that need to be eliminated if you really want to know the truth. And uh, I propose a test for doing that called the outsider test of faith, where you look at your faith, the one you were most likely indoctrinated to believe in, um, based in threats of hell. Threats of hell, by the way, will only uh, imprint that faith much deeper into your brain. Um, and the, uh, the only, the best way, if, if there is a way at all to understand whether or not your faith is true, is to approach it as a, as a non-believer, approach it as, as if you're hearing it for the first time. Um, and um, so I'm hoping that more and more uh, Christians, as they understand kinds of bias and kinds of distance, they will ab- adopt that approach because we can't all be right and all of our different faiths and what we um, believe with so- some people believe with absolute certainty. So um, your question was um, my own cognitive distance. Right. I think uh, I think uh, it had to do with um, you know being evangelical and. Believing the Bible is true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I yeah. just full, full stop. Full stop. Because <laughs> <laughs> it uh, it came up untrue whenever I studied it out. You know, whenever I looked at see uh, whether what uh, you know there's any archaeological findings for Exodus or uh, any scientific findings for the sun stopping in the sky or the Bethlehem star leading to 
you know, a little small little town called Bethlehem, or even uh, the fact that stars swerved in the night, you know, and, and um, they could, um, uh, that they were just hung up uh, not that far above the mountains, t- mountaintops, and you could maybe even just reach up and touch them. They're that close, and that's where God lived, and that's where his angels lived, and he came down from the sky to visit us, uh, and he took a few of us up into chariots, and like Elijah, um, and uh, Enoch all of a sudden, he, was just, he just kind of disappeared up there and uh, Jesus is supposed to come back down from there and every eye is going to see him except that we live in a round round earth. (laughs) So every eye will not see him as he comes out of that sky. So that thing in um, Genesis 1 through 11, I studied it in depth. I read all kinds of commentaries. I got really sophisticated commentary to try to explain it away. And none of them could explain it away. <laughs> this is pure myth. <laughs> right, yeah. There's nothing to it, you know. And uh, when that happened, then of course, well, what else is myth? Well, maybe, maybe just maybe, uh, you know, a donkey talking would be myth <laughs> too, you know. All of a sudden, my eyes became enlightened like never before. You mean the donkey never said a word? Nope. <laughs> and I started asking myself, I started asking myself, well, what would I do if somebody told me that their their ass talked? <laughs> I like to use that word. <laughs> or some say it's God uh, talking out of his ass. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I would say I would say, well, okay, bring your ass on down here and <laughs> have a champion words. <laughs> you know, and uh, barring that, there's no reason anyone should believe what he says. Like Balaam, for instance, you know, because he was the one who reported that um, myth. <laughs> if he existed, which I don't think so. It's all story. Um, and I, so I started looking for that kind of evidence. The kind of evidence that is not there. <laughs> or fire down from the sky, you know. Um, you know, and that uh, there's a famine. Well, God, uh, wait a minute. I hear things like Pat Robinson, you know, saying such things like that. There's a there's a, a hurricane and New Orleans got sunk, so therefore God did because of homosexuality. I mean, everybody can do that. Anybody can say those things. Right, yeah. But, and which we heard we heard about in the Bible. Um, and uh, but where is the evidence for it? There certainly wasn't any evidence that uh, that heaven is above us and God lived up there. And, uh, you know, he sent the, a, a worldwide flood down from the sky. That's what it says. He opened the floodgates of heaven because it holds back the water up there. So I uh, began looking for evidence, and that was the that was the thing for me. Um, and uh, I came down to the position that I am of today, which um, you know changes slightly, ever so slightly, um, from year to year. Um, and that um, um, that uh, there's just there's just all right. All right here's a, here's why I put it. People say, "What do you mean there is no evidence for the Bible? There is no evidence for God or Jesus?" Well. Uh, and they want, they want to say, you can't say there's no evidence. I'll say, well, what is it? And I'll say, well, we've got the evidence in the Bible itself. It's, uh, these are testimonies. These are, these are um, stories written by eyewitnesses, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and I repeatedly uh, um, challenge them to, <clears throat> to describe the difference between testimonial evidence like that in the ancient world in, of a superstitious thing prior to science <clears throat> and real evidence. Now, evidence like DNA evidence, evidence like you would expect for the virgin birth of Jesus, like, for instance, Maury Povich, 
you know, saying that Joseph is not the baby daddy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, or maybe, you know, I mean, if you really want to do a scientific test and have Mary wear this, wear some kind of chastity belt up until the time of birth and have it inspected and, and um, you know, uh, for that evidence. And, um, but all we got, and when it comes to the virgin birth of Jesus is, is Mary's word, you know, and Joseph apparently had a dream. Now, who's going to take a man who says, I had a dream, and in my dream, God spoke to me and said, that uh, this is uh, this is this child from Mary's is is, is of God. <laughs> who's gonna who's gonna take that as evidence of anything in that day world? You see, so there's no evidence for the virgin birth of Jesus at all. No objective evidence that you got. And and when it comes to testimony, uh, um, people, we, the forensics show that I watch from time to time says that um, um, <clears throat> people lie. The evidence does not. <laughs> so uh, I'm not. I'm not going to take testimonial evidence. Uh, it's all. It's all about the difference between testimonial evidence and objective evidence. And there, is, and I say there are. There is no objective evidence for anything in the Bible, anything crucial, you know, in the Bible, um, anything supernatural in the Bible, anything miraculous in the Bible. Uh, now, there's there's uh, evidence that seems consistent with it. Like, for instance, there really is a town called Bethlehem, and there really is a uh, Mount of Olives in, in Jerusalem. But that's, that's um, uh, and there's a pool of Siloam. We found, uh, we found the pool of Siloam, archaeological has found, has found that. And other things, there's, there's evidence that is consistent with white, what the Bible says, <clears throat> but that's not the same thing as confirming what the Bible says. Because if, if you only want what's confirming, then you're not going to find anything. It'd be like saying, well, the city of Roswell, New Mexico, is is c- confirming evidence that there are really are aliens. No. <laughs> no, it doesn't confirm there's aliens. It only it only confirms that there's a city named Roswell New, in, in New Mexico. <laughs> so we have to get our, straight, our story straight. We have to get our evidence straight. And we're looking for confirming evidence, not... Um, uh, I mean, when I say confirm, we're looking for evidence, objective evidence, not testimonial evidence, and it's the evidence that confirms rather than evidence that is consistent. What about the idea, John, of special pleading? That seems to be used. Could you tell the audience about that and how it just makes no sense and probably drives you crazy? <laughs> oh, yeah. I have, um, I wrote a, a book called. Um, I, I talk about that more specifically in the, in my book called How to Defend the Christian Faith, Advice from an Atheist. I thought I'd write a book that would uh, teach the apologists how to do apologetics right. <laughs> and in the process, yeah, it's true. It's a good book, I think, one of my best. And I thought that if I just told them how to do it right, and that it leads to the conclusion that they can't do it at all, Here's how to do it right. But if you do it right, you can't do it at all. That's basically what it says. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that um, um, that maybe I could teach them something. Uh, although I did give some actually uh, helpful advice, like get a get a real education at a real university, <laughs> and uh, you need to realize the monumental challenges, and I list them. And you need to answer the most important question of all, and that is why you need to do apologetics at all. Why didn't God just decide to do it? Because it's so much of an important thing to Him. Um, and I have a chapter in a, called "Accept Nothing But uh, Objective Evidence." But one of the chapters is you must specialize in special pleading. <laughs> I love it. Uh, that's uh, what? 
I said, that was funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want to do, uh, you know, so it's, that's, that's tongue-in-cheek, you know, that yeah, advice. Yeah. Uh, I have a whole section that, that that's just part two where it's a uh, special pleading is all you got. But basically, you have arrived at your conclusion, now special plead to it. <laughs> uh, that is, that is uh, you know, um, make your claims separate and, and different than the other claims and special plead to your claims and ignore the other claims, the claims are other religions, you know? Um, and so what they say, <clears throat> if allowed for the other religions would legitimize the other religions just as well. So they're not really doing apologetics at all. They're doing nothing but saying things like, um, my God's different. Oh, you know, they're all different. So what <laughs> you get it? Uh, and that's what they'll say. Well, you know, and that, uh, and, um, our miracles are different. Uh, we have to treat our miracles differently. Um, and it, it goes on and on. That's what they do when they do apologetics. And if you want to do apologetics, right. Then I, in a tongue in cheek way, you must special plead and you must uh, specialize in special pleading because that's the only way you can get it done. And then, of course, I, I argue against special pleading itself, saying it's not really any uh, honest way to treat the evidence. Makes sense. Uh, Vince, do you have a question for John? Yeah, John, would you say that, that absence of evidence is evidence of absence? <clears throat> that's a Hitchens uh, thing. I, I think that's, um, I'm trying to remember now. I quoted uh, something in of him in my chapter. I think, uh, yeah. Oh no, here's here's what I quote in uh, in the appendix of my book, The Case Against Miracles. I said um, Christopher Hitchens is dead on when he said, "What can be asserted without evidence can also be dismissed without evidence." Is that the same quote? I mean, do you, do you recognize that as the same quote? No, no, no. Uh, let me rephrase it. Basically, supposing you can't prove a certain miracle, but does that mean that you disprove the miracle if there's no evidence? In other words, are there some phenomenon that occurred that I can't don't have evidence of? Maybe I have evidence of the actual phenomenon, but that I can't prove the source of. So I must remain agnostic. You see. Oh. Um, if I can understand your interpretation of it, uh, <clears throat> then uh, the question is, um, let me just see if I can rephrase it, because I remember this phrase. I just didn't use that particular one in uh, the appendix. <clears throat> but um, uh, you, uh, something isn't disproved simply because you, um, it, it's asserted, one more time. Uh, yeah, doing that again. Yeah, something isn't disproved if there's no evidence for it. In other words, supposing there's a miracle of some, supposing somebody is miraculously cured by cancer and they use mm. they say, I use a certain mm. thing, I use visualization, I use this, I use that. It's not scientifically proven in a study or so, uh, or mm. some yeah, such. And you mm. also have, uh, for example, people say, well, Paul doesn't talk about the historical Jesus. Is that absence of evidence? I mean, does that mean anything? So the question is whether or not miracles can occur, which uh, are not supported by scientific evidence. Miracles, that there might be a God who does miracles, 
It's just that he does them, and we can't verify them objectively. We might have a personal a personal um, experience of that miracle, but we can't prove that it happened. Something like that. Yeah, or whether that's with or without yeah. God. You know, it doesn't even need God. There's okay. like a, many All possibilities. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now that's that's true. I think uh, that we could have miracles without evidence for them. Um, I mean, uh, that would be. Um, <clears throat> That'd be something that we really don't want to deny, um, and uh, and yet, um, if if there's a God who wants us to believe, then you'd think He would provide evidence for those miracles. Um, and um, if He's not that kind of God that doesn't care whether we believe in Him, then um, then He can you know do those kind of miracles all all He wants. Like for instance, uh, I could. Oh, as an example, I, I like to use the word uh, levitating. I could be levitating right now, you know, uh, whether a miracle or not, in my my house here, <clears throat> and I couldn't prove it to anybody. And as soon as I turn my let's say as soon as I turn my cell phone on, all of a sudden I stopped levitating, so I couldn't prove it for some reason, right? <laughs> so I mean, even you know, even then, you might want to say. <laughs> Damn it! A cell phone failure again. You know, <laughs> I can't record myself well, doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I, so first, okay. First of all, those types of contrived defenses uh, to defend miracles uh, are just that. I mean, contrived. Um, you know, um, the, one, it's never happened to me. I mean, that kind of thing has never happened to me. I've never experienced personal miracle. I mean, I, I look at them objectively, uh, not through believers' eyes who seem to see a miracle and a piece of toast sometimes as a Virgin Mary, a miracle. Um, I, uh, I still have reason to want some sufficient evidence for it or suspend judgment. Now, that's what David Hume argued. He said, um, we need some serious, serious evidence that it happened before we should believe it. So, so that kind of miracle, if it happens to individual peoples around the world, um, um, still needs some objective evidence if it's supposed to convince anybody else. And since these miracles tend to lead people into different, even contradictory religions, religions who condemn other religions who claim the same sorts of things, you would ask yourself, well, there's something going on there. And it's not a miracle. It's, um, a lot of um, bullshit. Sorry. Um, there's a lot of people who claim a miracle happened that didn't happen at all. And you ask them and you just, for the details to confirm it. And before you know it, they have a false memory syndrome, syndrome where they remember something that never happened in the first place. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of ways we can um, uh, test for such a thing. But in the end, if, if all we can say is, well, we don't know, maybe. There are other ways to test that by asking for the belief system it leads to, let's say that belief leads to someone claiming that um, there are fairies, you know, flying around the sky, (laughs) you know, uh, well, let's let's test that. We never have any evidence of that. Well, that doesn't sound like anything I want to believe in because it makes no difference whether they exist. And uh, the hypothesis can be ignored because it has no claims on me is a pretty good answer to those sorts of phenomena. But that's an interesting question. I'm not saying, uh, it uh, doesn't leave room for more thought. But one thing this book does, A Case Against Miracles, uh, and you'll read it in the very first chapter, is it's against any apologetic coming from miracles. I mean, um, David Hume, his whole argument was um, that I should never believe um, 
that a miracle occurred based on testimony alone. That was his argument. Boom. That's based. Now, he was writing in the 18th century, and he's uh, discussing events that uh, supposedly happened in the biblical times. So, um, uh, but not necessarily to those events, just miracles in general. But, you know, he's got an eye with, he's got an eye on Christianity. And there's no reason why, given my distinction between testimonial evidence and objective evidence, and that there's no objective evidence in the Bible for anything, only testimonial evidence that's filtered by, you know, secondhand, thirdhand, forehand, and, um, and um, um, through, through time with copy editors and, and, uh, and plagiarism, that there's no reason why I should believe that testimonial evidence. And um, so the same thing would go with, with miracles, you know, carte blanche all the way down. So we're looking for reasons to believe miracles, not having experienced one ourselves. And I still think that um, even if these miracles do occur, um, uh, that have no evidence for them, that's no reason for anyone else to believe them. And I would think there are other uh, ways to examine those types of claims, as I mentioned with regard to the belief systems that are, that are uh, that worth it and whether or not it really matters if they did occur, if they um, are needless and, um, and uh, irrelevant to our lives. That kind of leaves history in a bad way, doesn't it? Because a lot of history is just personal testimony, you know, written down over the year and then read over the well, years. Yeah, I think I think that actually I think that gets actually gets it wrong. I think I think it flips the the actual uh, kind of questions we need to be asking. You're saying you're saying that well, then history then is is wrong or is in a, a bad shape. If we can't believe. Or could be, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's actually it's actually got it reversed. The truth of the matter is that um, uh, history is bad. I have a whole chapter in my book why I became an atheist called "The Poor Evidence of Historical Evidence." We already know that there are decades and even centuries where we have no evidence for anything. I mean, we have we have uh, like a historian a hundred years later who writes about it. And um, there's no evidence for what exactly happened. And we have to trust this historian. This historian supposedly did his work. So we have, to, we have nothing else to do but trust that historian without any really objective evidence. We might have a coin from that period or something like that with uh, you know, Caesar's uh, uh, headshot on it. So, so we already know history is like, as you say, history has um, in some cases less uh, evidence to, to believe. So then the argument should go this way. Given that history, history has so, so little evidence for it in many cases, and um, we, we have to believe because we have to accept things on less than good testimony uh, when it comes to these events because we have no choice, then how much more so should we doubt the miracle claims in history? It's, 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 so the question actually gets, it's, you, you know, it's flipped. Since history is poor, then how much more so is it poor to accept any claim of a miracle in the past? That makes sense. Yeah, it does indeed. And uh, you you touched upon this, John, but you were talking about evidence. And uh, I know I've seen this debate that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And some people say, no, just give us some evidence. But you deal with this and uh, you call it the, quote, the reasonable standard of extraordinary evidence. What is that, John? 
All right. Now there are, um, we have to distinguish between ordinary claims, extraordinary claims, and miraculous claims. And when someone makes a claim, we have to put it in one of these categories, or if we want to have it on a continuum, you know, stretching from um, uh, a quite ordinary event that happens every day, every every minute, whatever that might be, me talking, uh, <laughs> to to all the way on the other flip side of the coin, and that would be, um, you know, uh, miraculous events uh, uh, that only happen one time in all of history. Um, so that would be extremely uh, rare uh, type. I mean, of the of the most rare kinds. But in these three categories, every claim must fall when you're making a claim about some kind of event in history. So an ordinary claim, like uh, I saw a guy walking down the street today. Uh, what's his name? His name's George. <clears throat> we had a conversation, blah blah blah, about ordinary events. Like, well, what do you think about the virus? You know, spreading on. He said this. Well, you have no reason to doubt me. I mean, and and the reason why you have no reason to doubt me is because uh, nothing hangs on it. I mean, there's no world-shattering thing. And uh, if the guy said something pretty important about it, it might be something to, to, to that you could think about, it, like to say he did. You know, so you say, oh, okay, that's interesting. You'd m- mull it over in your mind, and that's all there would be to it. Additionally, you could verify that claim simply because I have no special interests. You know, I, I have nothing going on. Uh, I'm not trying to make a point, you know, that would be controversial. Oh, okay, well, that's fine, too. He's, he's got nothing to gain by it. And let's just say uh, you know me personally, and, um, you know, generally I'm trustworthy. I mean, let's just say you've never caught me in a lie, whatever. So, um, you know, okay, so you have every reason to believe just based on one person's testimony that, you know, such and such a date, this guy named George walked down the middle of my street, whatever. It's common and it's uh, ordinary, and it doesn't require any evidence for it at all, except for perhaps the evidence of my trustworthiness, uh, however that might be. Um, then then you got extraordinary claims, and uh, these are claims of things that, you know, very rarely happen. You know, that's what they are. Richard Carrier, I like his example. He, uh, what if he claimed that he has a rocket and uh, an interstellar spaceship in his backyard? <laughs> 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 that's that's within that's in within nature, you know. It's, uh-huh. it's within it's within what could possibly happen. So we can't doubt. Oh, that's impossible, and on the grounds that uh, you know the world laws won't allow that. Um, but it is far-fetched because <laughs> you have to think about the kinds of things that he'd have to have to do that. You know, you have to have some knowledge that, um, he, you know, he knows a lot, but he doesn't know much about that. And he'd have to have some money and he'd have to have all kinds of, um, you know, hardware and, and, uh, you know, uh, whatever. I mean, just all kinds of things. You'd have to say, let me see it. Let me see pictures of it. Let me, you know, you know, let me talk to people who've been there and examined it. You're going to look for more evidence than that. And the more, the better. And then if he, he could convince you with, of that, which he can't, then uh, um, then you could believe it. Another example would be someone claims that uh, they saw uh, another person uh, deadlift 1,500 pounds. Now, the world record is 735 pounds. And a body wouldn't uh, allow you to pick up 150, uh, uh, 1,500 pounds of, of dead weight you know, over your head. Um, your bones would break. You, know, you just can't do it. We're not there yet. And we may never be. So that's an extraordinary claim, too, those kind of things. And you wouldn't believe those things, um, you know, with, uh, without, uh, not, not, not on testimony alone. I got to see these things. I got to see them for myself. 
So you need objective evidence for that, and a lot of it. You know, you'd have to have verifiable, you know, studies done, whatever, and bone structure and, you know, things. And then there's miraculous um, events. And um, I like the one, uh, you know, where, you know, Mary had a virgin. Uh, Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to a child. Well, that's, um, that's beyond the deadlift of a 1,500 pound because that's unnatural. That's outside the bounds of what we know to be possible. And it's beyond the bounds of Richard Carrier having a, a rocket and he has an internet interstellar uh, spacecraft up there. I mean, far beyond that claim. So if we wouldn't believe those claims, then we shouldn't believe um, in uh, the virgin birth claim. So this is the kind of objective evidence that is never found with any event in the Bible and um, never found without, within um, any other claim that we know of. I mean, we just don't have that same kind of evidence that would prove uh, a virgin birth because we don't have that same kind of evidence that could prove someone lifted that death weight lifted uh, 1,500 pounds. And so that's the case against miracles. Give us that, the same kind of mir- evidence that would prove Richard Carrier's claim or the deadlift claim, and then, we're, then we can talk. But at that point, all we have is um, um, we're still at the extraordinary claim. We're not at the miraculous claim. For there to be a miraculous claim, David Hume says the evidence must be just as miraculous as the claim itself. Because that's as far as you can get. You, can, that's, you can't get beyond it. You can't get above miraculous to, to claim you saw a, mirac- a miracle. You, at best, you can only equal it. At best, you can only match it. And he says, well, that's the best you can get with testimonial evidence. That's the best you can get. You, the best you can get is to equal the claim. You know? And so he said at that point, since you're, you've only equaled the claim, because you had one testimonial evidence that was claimed, um, you know, someone deadlifted, you know, 1,500 pounds. And on the other hand, you had the, uh, the uh, wait a minute, no, no, virgin birth. Got to go back to virgin birth. You had the claim, and on the other hand, you might have testimony evidence that's overwhelming uh, in favor of that claim. He said, at the best, then, since it's a miraculous claim, the best you could do is just suspend judgment and say, you know what, hey, I don't know what happened, because they've canceled each other out. And so when it comes to miracles like the virgin birth or a resurrection from the dead or some of the other kinds of things like an axe head that floated or, or a donkey that talked, talk, <laughs> there's, uh, there's no reason to believe it. Even if you had the evidence required from testimonial evidence, you would still only suspend judgment. I find it persuasive, personally. No, that makes perfect sense. And just out of curiosity, because again, we ask that to many of my guests, where do you stand on the existence of a historical Jesus? <laughs> uh, that is more so, so much more important of a question to ask than anything else I've got to say. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's today's shibboleth. It's like, can you say the word correctly? You know, uh, let's listen very tightly and see what his... His elocution is. So let's see if he's got his, you know, um, and see if he's one of us or not. No, I, uh, I'll answer, but uh, that's fine. Um, I, uh, I'm co-editing with Robert Price uh, a new book on uh, Jesus mythicism. Had he told you? No, he hasn't told me. I just he's actually no. sending me his book on Lovecraft. So I got to crack on that first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're we're co-editing a, a book on Jesus mythicism. What we've done. Uh, he invited me to to join him. And oh, very cool. Um, yeah, and 
Um, it's going to, it's titled, uh, varieties of Jesus mysticism. We already have a contract and, um, we're just waiting for a couple of final chapters on it. And then, um, it'll go to the publisher and, you know, nine months to a year later, it'll be out. And what it is, is it's, um, um, it's a, a series of new essays based on books and writings and other things like that, of course, where various Jesus mythicists explain how the, the, the myth began. You know, they have different theories. How did this myth began? begin? Was it a Roman uh, hoax, you know? Was it an angelic being in the sky, you know? Is it based only on the stars? Uh, yes, there's a whole bunch. Yeah, stars, or is it based on Old Testament? Yes. Right, I, I, that's right. Um, and one author claims it's, uh, it was originally a play uh, that was uh, written for uh, actors, you know, so... Um, and so uh, we, um, you know, we're, um, and, and I've got the preface. I wrote a preface to that book, and um, that's all I did. I, my uh, my claim, and it answers your question, is that um, we we know that uh, G- the Jesus didn't exist in the Gospels, because what we have at best from the various accounts that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and other non-canonical Gospels. Uh, what we have is a composite figure, and composite figures never exist in reality. Um, and I said it'd be like saying <clears throat> Santa Claus is real, or um, uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, is real, um, or um, one other character, Popeye. <clears throat> Popeye was actually based on a, a real person, and, um, the, but uh, he gets so so lost in in the uh, in the cartoon, there's not that same guy, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. the point. It's not the same guy. I mean, you, you can't, you can't, and Santa Claus is kind of based on a real person too, but it's clearly not the same guy of St. Nick. I mean, you know, so, um, in my preface, I simply use those as examples. And I say, uh, what we, what we know and really is not up for debate among people who reject Christianity is that um, this Jesus existed. He clearly did not. He did not do these miracles. He was not raised from the dead. He wasn't born of a virgin. This guy never existed. And so that's what my contribution is. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yes, and you deal a little bit in your great chapter, The Resurrection of Jesus Never Took Place. And, uh, uh, for example, a new insight I found is you mentioned a census done, I think it's 48 A.D., and it talks about, I think in Palestine, there were 8 million Jews and uh, nobody heard of Jesus then. Not one tweet or blog post or mention. <laughs> 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 yeah, there were, uh, I think uh, the uh, census uh, revealed there were 2.5 million Jews living in Palestine at the time. And uh, I find that uh, sometimes Christians, especially Catholics, they they seem to they seem to do some good research, you know. Honestly, they don't, they don't care what what they come up with so much as you know they believe in the church and the magisterium and and uh, you know the creeds. They can believe they believe or say they believe those things without actually caring what the Bible says. I mean, it's really odd. And so some of their research has been pretty good. Um, and David Sim wrote a really fine essay from which I get these figures and um, all right, and uh, and based an argument based on what he wrote. And, um, and he goes through the you know, Book of Acts and, and other kinds of um, artifacts that uh, he has found. 
and uh, conjectures that there uh, were only 1,000 Jews in the Jesus movement at the end of the first century. So, okay, wow. that's, uh, <clears throat> that's yeah. So, um, and they weren't they, they weren't in Palestine. I mean, most of them were outside of Palestine. So, with that data, uh, as best as we can come up with data, usually it's exaggerated, but still, even granting uh, some excesses, um, that um, uh, the Jews didn't accept the gospel. They just didn't accept Jesus as a Messiah. And, um, and it seems like to me that's a pretty good argument <laughs> for, for that the uh, the New Testament was uh, co-opted by um, writers outside the Jewish circles uh, who um, uh, came up with, uh, or either, either outside of it, or had concocted pagan ideas about who Jesus was or did, and certainly not a resurrection. Who though? Who who's who did that? I I've been listening to a, a lot of things like love listening to Robert Price for example, but I haven't heard yet any postulates about actually who started it all. I've heard about things in the past that it could have been drawn from, you know, ancient things like Dionysius and so forth, but do we have any evidence that anybody started Christianity at all? Well, um, I think it was, uh, you have to ask uh, Dr. Price on that, uh, see what his views are, but um, I think Gerard Ludeman uh, wrote a book called um, Paul, the Origin, the Originator of Christianity. Uh, you know, screw me if I got that all wrong, but there's a book out there. Um, uh, Paul, the First Christian, something like that. I don't remember now. But I, it, it makes a persuasive case that... Um, that uh, at least it does to me. I mean, we we do know that the first writings in the New Testament can uh, were written by Paul, First Corinthians, uh, Galatians, and I think a good case can be made that Mark's gospel was um, uh, later and may even be, um, in my view, um, taking some of Paul's theology and writing it into writing it up into a gospel format. Like, um, and for, to see that, you might want to interview or get the book called Deciphering Jesus by R.G. Price. I think he did a really good job of laying that case out. So, um, so you know, it, it, that's one, one way. I think Earl Dowry's view is that these ideas were floating all over in the, in the Roman Empire, and they just might well have been. And uh, that uh, somehow the Jewish idea of a, a, a the Jewish Jesus idea somehow was uh, uh, dominant or something like that. So it's yeah. weird though because Paul didn't talk about the actual Jesus of the Gospels at all, except oh, you know, uh, saved through Jesus, then the sins, and I mean, didn't talk about any of the actual gospel stories. So I, I don't, I doubt if uh, myself, if Paul actually uh, made all the stuff up in the gospels, it must've been somebody else. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. I see. Yeah. He talks about Jesus though. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, the, the Lord, you know. Jesus. And then, yeah. yeah. And then, then that's yeah. it. You know? <laughs> well, I, you know, it, it would stand to reason if, uh, if the whole, if the whole story is missed that, uh, Somebody wanted to put flesh and bones on Jesus. I mean, we we see that happening in the four Gospels. You know, um, um, in Mark's Gospel, there was no resurrection seen, no body to be had. But by the time you get to the Gospel of John, he's eating, you know, arriving and eating fish with them and and, uh, 
you know, stuff like that. So we, we see um, that mark taking, taking place, you know, ever so slowly. Maybe you by leaps and bounds, but yeah, they had to put flesh and blood on things. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, we also have to keep in mind that Paul already, there's already churches when he's out there preaching, but yeah, you mentioned Earl Doherty. That's still one of my favorite books. I think it stands the test of time, the Jesus puzzle, how, and you just mentioned this, John, there was like a country bumpkin wisdom group, uh, that had the gospel of Thomas or maybe put Jesus, you know, replace wisdom. And then you had the sort of uh, rising dying mystery school of Jerusalem, which Paul was part of. And then, like you said, these ideas just sort of fused in and became uh, one religion. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty well convinced that there were Jews, Jewish apocalyptic prophets, and um, if you're talking about a composite figure in a gospel of uh, of a uh, <clears throat> of one of them, you know, or, or a composite of all of them, uh, the gospel in Mark does depict that kind of person of a of a failed apocalyptic prophet, in my in my opinion. I wrote a chapter on that in the Christian Delusion, and um, it doesn't mean that. Um, but like I said, that person never existed because it was a composite at best. So um, it, there's a lot of thought to pan out. I don't, I don't really get into like that. And it, it seems like to me, uh, Hector Avalos is correct. Uh, I, I hope you know of his work. He's just an amazing scholar. Oh, yeah. he, he, he remains, he remains agnostic on the question. He says, when it comes to history and history of a, of a, a figure like Jesus, we really don't have enough information to say. And um, that doesn't make me not uneducated uh, um, about the issues or the data. Uh, it's just that um, it's, uh, uh, I think Bob wanted me to write a preface where I said, hey, all of a sudden I'm convinced. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm an educator in that book. I just simply bring in uh, some views uh, so that people can read them. I think that's fascinating because a lot of people just hear the word Jesus mythicist and they, they claim everybody's saying the same thing or everybody agrees about the same thing. Well, they don't. So no. I think this would be a good, a good seller. They, uh, they have different views about how Jesus originated and who Jesus was. And I, I find it fascinating. I think that the readership will as well, but uh, for now I got the case against miracles. I just hope people read it. It's really good. I think that there are a lot of atheists that um, um, don't think Hume um, did a good enough job, but, um, you know, I defend him. David Connor, the very first chapter defends David Hume and, uh, the appendix in the back is a book review of a, the most recent scholarly book on, um, on David Hume written by William Vandenberg called David Hume on miracles, evidence, and probability. It's about $70 right now online, but it's, um, so you can read the review <laughs> where I tell you what he 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 says, and uh, it's a master defense of David Hume. We we hope that we can put David Hume back on the board, um, and uh, um, the Christians are going around saying David Hume has been um, destroyed, you know, and uh, like that's some kind of a victory, and um, you know that's that's one thing if there's anything uh, that uh, people might get out of this interview and what to look forward to. I think that. David Hume was one of the greatest English-speaking philosophers ever, and his argument on miracles succeeds. If you were to put uh, 
<laughs> headline on that. I want to emphasize that. It makes it controversial, of course, for some, because uh, Graham Opie does not think Hume's argument see, succeeds. Michael Martin does not think it succeeds. And uh, um, some others uh, don't. Uh, Richard Carey doesn't think it succeeds. But I uh, I think I argue very convincingly, along with David Connor and William Vandenberg, that it does, and that we should um, we should continue hailing uh, his efforts at um, at the miracles. And uh, even, but I argue, even if it doesn't succeed, uh, the argument against miracles succeeds. So don't get that they're not intertwined, but. It's about time that people stop picking on him. <laughs> stop picking on David Hume. You know? Stop it. Stop it. No, just stop it. Awesome. Well, yeah. Yeah. For the audience, yeah, great read. Enjoyed the case against Miracle. Upcoming, we've got uh, Robert Price and Robert Connor. But we are at the end of this interview. Great interview. And first, uh, Vance, thanks for keeping us company on this journey back in ancient times. Oh, yes, it's fascinating, and glad to meet you, John, and um, uh, good luck with getting the okay. book out, and uh, enjoy the interview. Thank you. I was honored to be on it. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. Appreciate it, and uh, good luck with everything. All righty, and there you have it. The entire interview with John Loftus. I'll keep it short and unsweetened led us to Robert Connor and Robert Price, and as mentioned, with a spirited mini-debate in one section. For AB Prime members and patrons at Patreon, you get the full sacrilege. We have a special show as we have a group discussion on a recently released book, the Case Against Miracles, edited by John Loftus. Great book with um, the introduction by Michael Shermer uh, and a group of great authors contributing to free thought and deconstructing Christianity and a whole bunch of other insights. So with us on this special show, we are glad to be joined by Robert Price, the Bible geek. And as I always say, Bob, uh, how are things on the oppressive yoke of the archons? Uh, well, uh, middling to good. Uh, have to fight off the bat-winged uh, uh, servitors <laughs> of the demiurge, but uh, it's uh, not too bad. In fact, I'm kind of becoming friends with them. Yeah, I know. I was thinking, you know, in the secret book of John, they've got an archon for every body part. The guy who's working on our immune system, probably named Corona, he's like dropping the ball, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> No uh, doubt. But what are you going to do? And then there's also the Archon Biden, the, the guardian <laughs> of stupidity. <laughs> but uh, I don't want to get that time. Yeah, yeah. No, let's not get political too. Uh, but of course, the jokes will, of course, have to come because we're all having a good time in this time of quarantine. And uh, somebody mm. whose ideas are never quarantined and I always enjoy having on the show is also a contributor to the case against miracles is Robert Connor. How are you doing, Robert? I've been worse. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been better? I hope. Let's hope. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every bit has been better. But, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. <laughs> And uh, we also have the one person who does not have Robert or Connor on his name, and that is Vance <laughs> Saatchi. How are you doing, Vance? 
Oh, I'm fine. I'm hunkered down here with my anti-bat bunker around me. Um, <laughs> excited to hear um, uh, from uh, both Robert and Bob about Paul and all these other things. And so, and I'm also an official apostolic Bible geek. So I've heard many, many. Oh, Bible can I get a witness? Amen. Oh, <laughs> I got a bat here. I'll send over to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course, if we talk about Paul, I would like uh, to request for you, uh, Bob, that you use your Paul Lynn voice if you can. That's my, one of my favorite <laughs> ones from the Bible geek and John Wayne, God, of course. Within Christ, make him silent the world to himself. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. All right. Well, how did uh, this book come about? I'm assuming uh, John Loftus just reached out to you, pitched it to you. I've never been part of something like this, but uh, how did this come about? Bob, you want to go first? Well, uh, I just uh, got an invitation from him, and uh, most of the topics he had suggested uh, were taken, And I, uh, but I kind of wanted to do the incarnation uh, anyway, uh, because this is supposed to be the big miracle, I mean, even more so than the resurrection, and I thought I had an interesting angle on it, so uh, he was uh, okay with it, and I wrote it. Awesome. Yeah, great article, and we'll discuss it. What about you, Robert? How did you get involved in this heresy? Uh, well, I had done a lot of research on magic in early Christianity, as you know, and it kind of worn that subject uh, threadbare. Uh, and I, I chipped in a chapter on that, and then I chipped in another chapter on the missing parousia, which has also been kind of litigated to death. But the chapter that I was most interested in writing was the next-to-last chapter in there on Paul's Christianity, in which I argue that Paul was, in fact, if not functionally, clinically insane. And um, let me just use uh, Edward O. Wilson's definition of insanity from his book, Conciliance, the Unity of Knowledge, quote, the persistent production of scenarios lacking reality and survival value is called insanity. And that pretty much sums up Paul. Uh, and as I wrote this chapter and went through the Pauline letters, the seven that are generally agreed to be authentic, I found a lot of information in there that would point to even contemporaries considering Paul to be basically batshit. <laughs> but isn't that part and parcel of being a religious leader, whether you're talking about, I mean, hearing voices and all that, whether you're talking about Mohammed, Shabbatai, Zevi, I mean, you name it, isn't that part yeah. of the, that goes with the territory? Yeah, and surprisingly enough, uh, and in an in, in encouraging way, in a positive way, that has actually entered mainstream um, psych literature. I would point the interested listener to the uh, second edition of Psychosis and Spirituality Consolidating the New Paradigm, which was released in 2010. And that is a collection of essays by people in the field who notice that there really is not any clear distinction between psychosis and religion. 
in fact, it the line is so blurry as to be indistinguishable. And Colleen Shantz, interestingly enough, wrote a book in 2009, published by Cambridge University Press, Paul in Ecstasy, the Neurobiology of the Apostles' Life and Thought. So I, I am certainly not an outlier or mm -hmm. on the fringe in questioning Paul's sanity. That has become actually pretty common. Uh, it has been questioned for quite some time. And I think that that is uh, becoming a more uh, productive line of thought in psychological literature generally. The connection between insanity and religion seems to be pretty tight. And what do you think, Bob? Uh, do you think Paul was crazy or crazy like a fox? Or I was listening to you were on uh, the, with my friend Derek in the Myth Vision podcast, and you were mm -hmm. talking about the Pauline letters might be just have written by kind of a, a patchwork put together. We don't really have a person. Or do you think, what do you think of Paul's sanity or what is written about him? Well, there are, uh, for, for one thing, when somebody gets into a, a, a system of thought, whether it's political, philosophical, uh, religious, it's uh, there. I, I don't see usually uh, insanity so much as as delusion that they're laboring under a false um, system of thought or a groundless one anyway, uh, and uh, that within the uh, system, it may make entire sense. There's just no real reason to believe in it. Uh, there are crazy people, and I don't see that in uh, Paul. But then again, I, I have the same problem with this that I do with any orthodox attempts to synthesize a, a, a Pauline thought or Pauline theology. Uh, as you just mentioned, I tend to go with the Dutch radical school of Van Manen and others, and I think that we, we've got uh, patchworks uh, by different Paulinists, polemical corrections and counter-corrections, so I don't know that we've even got one patient on the couch, but uh, assuming we do, uh, even if you say he was a visionary, and, and that's difficult to say because like even the book of Revelation and stuff like that, uh, these seem to be purely literary creations, not actually based on visions anyone had. But even if they were, I think of a study, I sort of think it's by Spong and Spiro some years ago, who uh, were interviewing shamans, and uh, they figure, well, these guys must be textbook cases of paranoid schizophrenia. They, they have visions, they hear voices, they go into trances, and they think they're in another world and all this. But then they gave them, I think it was the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, and these guys came out as being as sane as the day is long, um, po possibly because their behavior and the assumptions behind it fit well into a social structure. They were sort of mediators and ombudsmen uh, using their, their uh talks with the uh, the ancestors in the the spirit world to solve problems between uh 
complainants and so forth. And uh, I, that's ever since that's made me think, well, is it possible somebody is just playing by very different, but different rules, but workable rules in the setting. And uh, I, I don't know, but I'm, uh, it's, it's easy to, to take polemic a little too seriously. And I think the same way about certain political views. I wonder how, I won't get into what they are, but I hear people talking about their, their ideology and their beliefs. And I think, how can they possibly think this? Well, they're, uh, totally, uh, part of a particular plausibility structure and within that or by the the ground rules it makes sense to them i just am not part of the same thing i'm not playing the same game so to me it looks bizarre so i i don't know i I, i've got to read uh your chapter i'm sure it's fascinating and you may well be right but those are just some of the the reasons for some of the hesitations it's kind of like when they said uh, jesus was insane uh and uh some some scholars back in schweitzer's day and he wrote this interesting brief book the psychiatric study of jesus where he said and and he did think that uh, most of the stuff at least in matthew and mark went back to jesus and he said that uh, these people are making a big mistake here they think that uh, for jesus to believe himself to be the son of man the future judge of mankind etc is a delusion of grandeur but it's these things weren't so outrageous in their original cultural context it's in our day it would be more like uh, somebody convinced someday I'm going to become president. And occasionally they do like Clinton, I think uh, was that way. And, you know, darned if he wasn't right. And so it's, it's difficult to, uh, to be sure that somebody from an alien culture to us is, uh, is crazy uh, just because they sound very different. One last thing and I'll shut up. I was at a, a unification church conference some years ago and there were all kinds of exotic, fascinating characters there. And I was introduced to a woman who was dressed and kind of like the, uh, I think the, 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 the character on the label of some sort of uh, Dutch hot chocolate. I don't know what it was called now, but with the, <laughs> the braids and the, the, the uh, headgear and all that stuff. She believed she was a, a healer who got her powers from, I think, somebody on Saturn. Well, uh, this was utterly fascinating to me. And uh, she seemed to be, again, as sane as the day is long, just operating on completely different assumptions. And uh, she wasn't like a ranting lunatic. So I no longer know how to interpret eccentricity or alienness. Indeed, but uh, I think Robert also says that uh, it Paul himself is defending uh, mental illness. Robert, isn't he doing that in some of his letters? I think in one, you talk about how I think Festus goes, you know, Paul, you're losing your mind, you know, with, yeah, with and, like an old Jewish accent. You're losing your mind, Paul. Well, I know that it's reductionist and simplistic to claim that Christianity is basically insanity but the problem is christians just keep supplying so much evidence for it uh, if you had been miraculously converted on the road uh fallen off your horse so to speak and uh you were living 
contemporaneously with Jesus, what would you do? Would you uh, hie yourself to Jerusalem and ask the apostles, hey guys, what did I miss? Well, oddly enough, you know, Acts 9 basically says that's what happened with Paul. It says, Paul came to Jerusalem and Barnabas took him to the apostles and he told them how Paul had had this miraculous experience and seen the Lord. The Lord had spoken to him and he had preached in the name of Jesus, yada, yada, yada. Okay, here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. Quote, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, okay, so Paul now has decided that God called him when he was a fetus, was pleased to reveal his son in me, Oh, reveal his son in you, Paul, how special, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem and see those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James. So where does Paul get all of his information about Jesus? Well, you well, read this letter. He doesn't have any to share, does he? Yeah. Oh, he has tons to share. In fact, if you don't believe Paul's gospel, then you're done. You're completely done. Well, he Paul, doesn't say anything about Jesus, the healer, Jesus, the teacher, no, anything like that. No, he has no interest in the historical Jesus. Mm -hmm. He doesn't mention anything about the Christmas story. He doesn't right. mention anything about the miracles, no walking on water, raising the dead, none of that crap. Right. He doesn't know anything about the virgin birth. He doesn't know anything about the quote-unquote historical Jesus. That doesn't concern him at all. Mm -hmm. right. Jesus does not get interesting to Paul until he's dead. And once he's dead, then Paul is all on. So Paul, okay, in 1 Corinthians 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Jesus, the life of Jesus thing is of no interest to Paul. Later on in 2 Corinthians says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, we, we regard him thus no longer. He doesn't care. He doesn't care even if Jesus was the Messiah. There's a strain of thought that's fairly popular in mainstream New Testament studies that when Paul is using the term Christos, which we would think Christ, a.k.a. Messiah, that he's using it as basically an honorific. He isn't interested in the Jewish Messiah. You I mean, how would, you ex how would you expect the Jewish, why would you expect anyone expect the Jewish Messiah who has come to deliver Israel, why would you expect him to be arrested and crucified by the Gentiles when he's supposed to be, you know, taking names and kicking ass. Instead, the <laughs> Gentiles arrest him right off the bat and nail him up. <laughs> it's like, really? Some Messiah coming with the clouds of heaven, blah, blah, every eye will see him? That Messiah? 
<laughs> yeah. Paul isn't interested in that Messiah. Paul is interested in his visions. And Paul's letters are full about his visions. Woo, he is a visionary. I don't see how this adds up to him being uh, insane. I mean, even if this is all by or about Paul by people that knew what they were talking about, which I doubt, um, uh, that does, like uh, Joseph Smith claimed to have visions, but he doesn't appear to, he may have been a trickster, but uh, I don't think he showed signs of being a lunatic. Oh, I think the people in his own day, I think his contemporaries recognized that he was a lunatic. Uh, how about Second Corinthians 5.13? Quote, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. Why would he bring that up? Why would you mention if some say we're out of our mind unless some people were saying he's out of his mind? Well, of course, there are, there are people that will say that, even if you're not, they just want to discount what you said. Like, was Jesus, is it genuine evidence that Jesus was a drunkard and a glutton? Because the Gospels record uh, that some people said that, and it seems to be presented as a slur. Uh, I, uh, I'm, I wouldn't, have, that's why I say polemics sometimes get so nasty that it's dangerous to take it as, as literal fact. But this is Paul responding to something. This isn't something that somebody wrote. Uh, this is genuine Paul. What about... As uh, some say. Yeah. Some, 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Why would well, Paul yeah, say... Yeah, why would Paul say silly. I'm talking like a madman unless somebody had implied that he was a madman? I mean, that I would just be the... to hear that interpretation. It seems to me clear, and I, I'm not even sure that Paul existed. I'm far from being an apologist for, for Christianity, but it seems to me obvious that he's saying, this is embarrassing that you forced me into bragging. It's stupid, but here goes if you want to play that game. And he says, are they Hebrews? Oh, I, I'm one. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Are the apostles? Uh, I'm a better one because uh, I'm your apostle. They didn't start your church. I did. And I just don't see that as anything but uh, but uh, polemical boasting. It's like he knows this sounds kind of silly, and he's embarrassed to have to resort to it. That doesn't sound to me like uh, that, that you've got a crazy person talking. Uh, like, is Mary Magdalene definitely a demoniac, uh, or were, is it equally likely that uh, people just try to discount what she had to say by saying, well, you don't need to pay attention to her, she's de demon-possessed? Well, I, I have nothing to say about Mary Magdalene, uh, who may or may not have been real, but I accept that Paul was real, and Festus in Acts 26 is asking Paul, uh, you know, to defend himself and concludes, you are out of your mind. Okay, so what was driving Paul out of his mind? Well, well presumably in the verse, what Luke says he said, which is not insanity, yeah. he's just defending Jewish belief in the resurrection. Exactly. Paul says, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as, and as the first to rise from the dead, except the, far, the prophets don't say anything about the Messiah rising from the dead. Why would well, the Messiah... Why would the that, Messiah... Is it insane? 
Yeah, that was Festus' conclusion. And that was probably the conclusion of other people at the time. We have this little quote from John 29, where Jesus is supposedly telling them that, you know, the Messiah had to suffer and die. And it says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You know, why not? Because there were no scriptures. There are no scriptures that said the Messiah will come back after all of these centuries as promised by God. And guess what? The Gentiles he has come to punish will nail him to a cross and put a sign over him that says, Jesus, King of the Jews. How would that fulfill any kind of prophecy? About well, the Messiah. No, it that doesn't. That doesn't make anybody crazy to believe it. Do you think fundamentalists who believe that today are raving lunatics? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's absurd. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, Kenneth Copeland has told his public that he needs the money for his private jets because there are demons on commercial aircraft. He's just so a it's con is Kenneth Copeland, okay, well, maybe he's a con man, and maybe he's crazy, but who's crazier? Kenneth Copeland or the people who send him money? They're just so naive to, dupes. To say that Christianity is functional, is functional insanity, is not a stretch. If you go and look uh, at the so recent... loaded, it's unfair. No, it's not unfair. I mean, I just fundamentalism, but I'm not going to start slandering them. Oh, you think Paula White is more in touch with reality uh, are, than, uh, than, than Paul of Tarsus? <laughs> all Christians, I she, think did, you're unfair. I, I mean, have you said her $91 seed money? <laughs> no, <laughs> because no, I would say I that if you have, you, you should probably be uh, seeing a psychiatrist. Well, uh, yeah. yeah, well, that's good. That's good to know. Um, so, yeah, if you go back through uh, Paul's writing, where is his knowledge of Jesus coming from? Because as you noted, he doesn't know anything about the historical Jesus, as, at least the historical Jesus that has traditionally been in the Gospels. Doesn't know anything well, about them. So where did he get all problem? Well, never mind, go ahead. Well, he says, he tells us again and again in Galatians 1, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Wow, Paul has got Jesus on speed dial, everybody. Uh, Surely you heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, the mystery made known to me by revelation. That's from Ephesians. Wow. I, I just can't believe you. You're like an 18th century rationalist. Uh, it, it just seems to me that you, you have no ear for the language of ecstatic religion that, that doesn't make people insane. They're, they're living in a world of, of it's like Freud said, it's the projection of the wish world onto the real world, but that doesn't make you a, a, an insane lunatic. Oh, well, I mean, Freud was uh, 18th century, wasn't he? Kind of. I mean, 19th century. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, here's the claim that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 4. By this gospel, which 
by he means the gospel I preached to you. You are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Wow. First Corinthians 15, 1 to 2. Yeah. That's not insane. He's just like Billy Graham, who said, oh, Jesus is the only way. Well, I don't so you would argue for the sanity of Billy Graham, who advised yes, I would. Uh, Richard yes. Nixon to bomb the dikes and, you know, uh, kill a couple I, of hundred thousand Vietnamese non-combatants? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't defend any of these people's sanity either on points of fact or points of morality, quite frankly. <laughs> well, I, I think we got an unbridgeable gap here. I just can't... Uh accept any of this they're wrong they were deluded but that's a little different than than being an insane lunatic what's the I difference but, well, tell me what the difference is between delusion and lunacy because the the recent psychiatric literature on religion is unable to find that that line well, I'll have to read it. I'm, I have to admit, I'm ignorant of that research, but I think of, uh, like, I think you've got some pretty good textbook cases of it with Islamic terrorism, uh, where they, uh, you know, but the, the night before they're going to destroy the World Trade Center uh, because uh, America is corrupt, the, the pilots are going out to, to get lap dances at the strip club. <laughs> yeah. Like, they, they have no strippers, sense. Yeah. Uh, well, well, how about creationists? You know, uh, uh, hijacking an idea spin doctors yeah so so if you if you hijack an idea or a method for example the historical jesus freaks from uh say liberty university if you're high what's the difference between that and hijacking a plane to to hijack well you're not you're not interested in landing it you know you don't care what it's for you're just out to use it as a method. So, I mean, That's because crazy. Christianity, because Christianity has calmed down in the last few centuries. Uh, what about the centuries when Christians were busy burning witches and burning each other, shooting each other to death, hanging each other, torturing each other for centuries, so on end over basically what amounts amounts to to precisely nothing. To absolutely nothing, to fantasy, to delusion. So how is that not homicidally insane? Well, we probably don't want to get into that because then we could talk about how the Chinese are treating their people or the Balkan Wars or all the conflict in Africa over yeah, whatever. True, I mean, true, it's a, I think, uh, yeah, if we want to talk about humanity being uh, mean to each other or right, cruel, right. we could go, we're all but crazy. We're talking, <laughs> yeah, but we're talking about Christianity, which is supposedly the divine revelation, the ultimate revelation of God's truth. So if we can agree that all the rest of that stuff is nuts, then why not just say, yeah, and Christianity is nuts as well? If it quacks a like a generalization. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but like I said before, Christians just keeps providing so much evidence for it. Every one of them, most of them, are, are bloodthirsty lunatics. I, I this is I have the same problem with Sam Harris as uh, Harris. Uh, only he at least clothes it in a, an echo of civility by saying that you uh, Methodist P 
two potatoes. Uh, you're you're really just giving aid and comfort to the Muslim kooks in Iraq who will kill you for getting a Western style haircut. Now that the latter is somebody being in, driven insane by religion, but uh, uh, the uh, it just seems to me that there are plenty of people for whom the Christian religion is a morally wholesome thing. They they derive it or express it uh, in in terms I think are mythological, but I, I don't think that makes them crazy. Yeah, I think the morally wholesome thing kind of fell apart during the 20th century when Europe, which was basically uh, Christendom, uh, went to war twice and slaughtered literally millions of people in the most brutal ways possible and invented new ways of killing people, the machine gun, gas, etc., tanks, and what have you. And they were all, uh, you know, disciples of the master. They were all oh, come on. Christian, and they had, and they had their, uh, yeah, and they, and they had their clergy running around praying for victory and and blessing people who were dying. And then, of course, then they cooked up, you know, mass genocide of various numbers of people, probably, you know, north of ten million people in total. Um, they were, you know, busy murdering uh, veterans of the First World War during the 1930s who had become incapacitated. And they're all Christians. And we had plenty of Christian theologians that piled on and said, oh, yeah, Hitler, he's, uh, he's the anointed one. Yeah, he's the second Cyrus or something. Yeah, he's come to save us. Thank God he's here to save Christianity. Well, yeah, can um, we, uh, can we, keep, yeah. Yeah, I'd rather uh, keep, stay with ancient religion instead of what the Japanese or the Germans and all that well, stuff. Well, yeah. That's, that's a whole, that's But a, this yeah. is Christianity. Christianity isn't just an ancient religion. It has 2,000 years of evidence. Right, exactly. But yeah. I like, I like your writings better, <laughs> which is the topic of the show. And of course, uh, yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to talk to my therapist about this, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Okay, as Vance? long as he's not a Christian, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Vance, uh, what do you think, or do you have a question for either Bob or Robert? Oh, well, you know, I'm listening to all this and getting a good chuckle because I think we're all bozos on this bus, you know, the bus being Earth. And, you know, then I'm thinking the Old Testament, well, aren't the Jewish people crazy, all that killing and stuff? But anyway, um, yeah, I was wondering, well, you know, this is with respect to Paul, you know, being real and all that stuff. But how about Paul as Simon Magus? And maybe Paul was, uh, this is for both Robert and Bob. Um, uh, maybe, maybe Paul was trying to co-opt the Jewish part of the beginnings of Christianity and start his own separate one that covered the Gentiles. Cause we all know that Paul was more, you know, he was the quote unquote apostle if you want to call him that, of the Gentiles. So maybe he needed all that fervor to gain his followers. And let's face it, isn't it true that, and of course, Robert, you wouldn't think this is a good thing, uh, isn't it true that if it wasn't for Paul, we probably wouldn't even know what Christianity is? Because I don't think the original apostles would have carried it into the future. The yeah, no, I don't think so either. Yeah, I think we, we're looking at Paul, you're looking at the actual founder of Christianity, which is what makes this important? Yeah. 
Absolutely, I agree with you. I don't. I, don't th- I think Jesus, if if he existed, was a Galilean peasant who got the apocryphal, you know, end times bug and went to Jerusalem at Passover, thinking that he was going to miraculously produce something, and basically the uh, temple authorities and the Romans nailed him up along, you know, like shingles, with a whole other bunch of rabble rousers that they didn't even, you know, bother with. Yeah, I think that's the story of Jesus, and I think that's basically where it ended. Yeah, of course, he rested on, I'm sure Paul's followers, you know, must have heard the stories back from the uh, from the original apostles in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what they had. They didn't have Bibles way back then, but they probably had something. Well, there's an interesting little, there's an interesting little blurb in Second Peter, I think it is, that references the writings of Paul, and a couple of people who have looked at that have suggested that maybe Paul's writings were collected before the New Testament, I mean, before the Gospels, and they were circulating before the Gospels. Uh, and, I, you know, there's a, there's a Catholic scholar that published in, I think it was Biblica, who argued that there was a Pauline canon, in essence, that was making the rounds decades before the Gospels were composed, uh, so that that Paul has this out-of-size influence on later Christianity that that in no way corresponded to his actual influence during his own life. And Bob, what do you think of this? Because uh, as you've pointed out, Paul wasn't really widely accepted with Christianity at first, right? He was, uh, what, with the heretics at first? Yeah, the only Paul, the first Paulinists we actually know of, like the ones that wrote commentaries on the epistles and things like that, and who overtly claimed him as their founder, were the uh, Gnostics and Marcionites. Uh, in uh, most of the liter- Christian literature of the second century, uh, Paul is uh, omitted, uh, possibly by guilt, by association from the use of his writings or the Pauline writings, whoever wrote them, by uh, the Gnostics and uh, and, and uh, Marcionites and so forth uh, until uh, Tertullian and Irenaeus got the idea of quoting those writings against Gnostics and Marcionites, sometimes by fudging them. Uh, well, the, uh, the, the thing that one reason for thinking that uh, Paul really did belong to the heretics was you don't really see any re- real influence of the epistles uh, until like St. Augustine. Uh, if you look at the Apostolic Fathers and, and the, even le- the later writers, uh, they just don't, they, some of them have heard of Paul and regard him as a martyr like the so-called First Clement does. But there's no apprehension of any distinctive Pauline thought, and uh, that kind of implies that he didn't have that kind of influence until centuries later. And so he had to be basically appropriate. It was kind of like, we're grabbing this, we're grabbing that, Uh, we got to get the Marcionites and the Gnostics on board, or at least take their ideas, or what do you think was the process? Well, uh, for one thing, uh, most New Testament scholars suppose that the Pauline epistles, whichever ones they think are genuine, uh, do predate the Gospels. And uh, 
even if they think the Gospels were written later in the first century, putting Paul around the 50s, early 60s, uh, I don't know that that's true. Uh, but uh, so that's not really that unusual. But it, it seems to me that the uh, that Paulinism was a whole different sort of a thing that was somehow fused with Jewish Christianity because of the idea of the the Messiah does of the who dies and rises does not seem to be part of Judaism, but it sure matches the the uh, soteriology of the various mystery cults. And uh, in fact, the uh, the uh, the Christos in the in the epistles seems to be in virtually every case used simply as a last name, like people still do today. There's no discussion really of the Messiah in the Pauline epistles, and it's hard to imagine how that could even have been of interest to uh, Gentile readers. I mean, can you imagine somebody saying, have you heard the news? There's a new uh, prince of Liechtenstein. What? Who cares? And uh, so he must have meant something else. And so it seems to me that uh, this kind of Christianity uh, in its Gnostic form uh, owes a great debt to the mystery religions. And so it had nothing to do with the historical Jesus, which is why there's nothing mentioned in the Pauline literature. And it wasn't because Paul had some real contact with the other disciples, but decided not to say what they told him. Uh, he's coming out of left field. Why is there an apostle, Paul, if the whole thing was supposed to hinge on 12 disciples, uh, the same in number as the tribes of Israel? Where's this guy come from? And this talk in a couple of places, I think in First Second Corinthians and Galatians, about another Jesus. Uh, it, it seems to me you've got a kind of fusion of a of a religion that was shrinking Jewish Christianity because Gentiles and Jews, uh, few of either, were interested in it. They survived by uh, merging with uh, with Gentile Paulinism and trying to harmonize them, and that's where the Marcion comes in. He seems to me to have been quite correct that uh, the gospel of, of in the Pauline literature uh, is not the gospel of Jesus presented in the gospels, which is mixed with, uh, which is a kind of Judaism. Uh, but to get them together, what the, the Catholics did, they're the ones that wanted to retain the link with Judaism, partly to, to get under the cover of the legal uh, legitimation of, of being a protected religion. Uh, what they did was to say, well, yeah, Jesus was the same as the Jewish Messiah. And, uh, oh, and did you know he was predicted in this and that verse, which of course is not the case, but they twisted the text to make it look like it. And oh, the ordinary Christian had no copy of the Bible. He, he couldn't even check it out if he wanted to. And uh, so that um, the Catholic Church probably especially Polycarp of Smyrna in the early to mid-2nd century, took the Pauline canon that you mentioned, uh, the, the so-called um, Evangelion and Apostolicon, the book of the gospel, the book of the apostle, and uh, and added to uh, each of the gospels, well, the, the only gospel they had, an earlier form of Luke, and then rounded up the other three and, uh, and bowdlerized them, subtracting and adding to make them sound uh, acceptable to 
Catholicism. They wrote the pastoral epistles and the book of Acts to try to to smooth and paper over everything and uh, to create a propaganda history. And so that originally, uh, Paul uh, wouldn't even have been a Christian in the sense uh, we think of now. Uh, and so I think of it in a, a whole different framework, and it does have everything to do with uh, Marcionism and Gnosticism. Have you ever heard the saying, Bob, uh, everybody has misunderstood Paul except Marcion, and even he misunderstood him? Have you heard that saying? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was yeah. Uh, Adolf Harnack. Yeah. Uh, he was still he still had a kind of a foot in orthodoxy, but he was coming close to Marcionism because he believed that uh, the Old Testament should be ejected from Christianity. And uh, he was there were other people who weren't Marcionites like uh, uh Theodore, uh, Theodore Mopsuestia, I think it is. He said, "Come on, these passages don't refer to Jesus. They're they're uh, altogether different, referring to Jewish matters." Well, that was Marcion's idea, from what we're told, that he didn't. He wasn't an anti-Semite. He didn't hate Jews, but he said, "Hey, our religion is not Judaism. Let's not try to co-opt their scripture. Let's not pretend that our Jesus, the revealer of the the loving Father." as opposed to the creator, uh, let's not pretend that he was the Jewish Messiah, because the Messiah is a nationalistic deliverer and all that stuff, just what you're saying. But they got fused together. And, and of course, what do they always do with stuff like that? They say, well, it's dialectical. God's power of the Messiah was shown <laughs> in weakness and death. Come on. Uh, it's just uh, more spin, it seems to me, in the interests of this Catholicizing project that worked. We are at the end for the audience. I advise you to read The Case Against Miracles. Plenty more, plenty of other good articles from a lot of very good thinkers. But we're at the end. Vance, thanks for coming on this journey with us. Oh, it's a lot of fun. And Robert and Bob, it's been fun being with you guys. I'm going to go back to being bats. So. <laughs> Don't eat any bat soup, whatever you do. Oh, eating bats. I see. Yes. Okay. Yeah, no bats. <laughs> no bats. Well, uh, Robert Connor, thank you very much for coming on the show once again. Always enjoy your company. Oh, you're very welcome. And Bob, uh, Did you as read always... the review I did of your book about the, the resurrection stories as ghost stories? Mm. Oh, no. I, that was I, you. Yeah. Yeah, there's a resur yeah the resurrection's ghost story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was really fascinating, and I reviewed it in uh, the Journal of Higher Criticism, which I oh read. cool. Yeah, I'll look that up. You know, I've always yeah, been making the case that most of this stuff is basically just reworked folklore. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Great book. Thank you very Indeed, much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Please uh, support both of these authors. And uh, Bob, uh, the Bible Geek, thanks for once again coming on Aeon Bite here in uh, somewhere close to the Pleroma, I hope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a privilege and a pleasure every time. Likewise. All right. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Night, night. Thanks. Night. night. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our interview with Robert Price and Robert Connor. What a dynamic duo of gnosis and free thinking. In our second part, we'll deal deeply with magic and Christianity. Was Jesus a magician? Perhaps, 
but we do get into some mythicism as well, and a deep dive into the doctrine of incarnation, and much, much more. Did Robert and Bob lock Baphomet horns again? You'll find out. Become a member for the full spectrum of magic, miracles, and madness in the New Testament. Your support solely keeps this red pill cafeteria growing. In fact, Aeon Bite has grown so much, advertisers are reaching out to me. But I only want to serve you and only you. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic content anywhere else on the internets or even meat space. Please go to the God Above God Dead Cam to become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon. For this and all full episodes and other infernal rewards. The world doesn't need a spiritual solution today, but a heretical spiritual solution. For any healing and for anyone navigating these dark, dark times. And if you've got holes in your pockets due to the monkey shines of archons or viruses, let me know. I'll give you any full show on the sick house. Do it all the time and no worries. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true, authentic self. Hello and goodbye as always. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.